If you don't know him, you don't live in this world. <laughs> Obviously, he is the one, the best known philosopher in the world. The, not the best, maybe, but the best known. <laughs> the, the most dangerous one, you know. And he has already threatened us with his last 1,000 pages uh, book. Uh, saying Hegel is kind towards us in my form, you know, <laughs> I will write all and about the entire world and uh, that he has already started. And he does it in such a fast way that he has to sleep long, long hours in order to get up again to the level of his own thinking. I'm very happy to welcome one of the founding professors of our program, the Jacques Lacan, professor of EGS, Slavoj. Thank you very much, and uh, just to begin with, are you paid by Gaddafi money or what? Because I noticed how here I was told the free day is Friday. Isn't it in Islam that Friday is their Sunday? No, so, and then if you connect this with the fact that, do you know, it's not a joke, uh, there the guy, Zurbriggen, told me that, you know that the name Alalin comes from Arab. When there were in early medieval times Arab invasions of Europe, they come. So I'm just putting all this together now. And <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Seriously. Now I want to do something. It's my moral duty here to annoy our good friend Wolfgang. I know that he doesn't like all this communist politics and so on. So this is exactly what I will do. No, seriously. <laughs> I just want kind of a briefly to give you a very elementary outline of what I think is going on in economy, where do we stand, what we can do. Okay, we all talk about crisis, Greece and so on. But uh, you may have noticed how suspicious this crisis is. You know, the West European uh, racist, uh, racist judgment, oh, those lazy Greeks who just spent money, clientelism, corruption. It's true. I was in Greece, they admitted to me. So I'm not idealizing Greeks, but there is one problem. We all know who did this clientelization. The two parties who are exchanging themselves in power for the last 30, 40 years, New Democracy and PASOK, and look the miracle, the West who puts pressure on Greece to end up with clientelism, fully supports exactly these two parties which embody clientelism. It's quite breathtaking. Uh, so uh, another thing you may have noticed, if you want to understand the psychoanalytic notion of Iberich, superego, it's the uh, pressure of European Union on Greece. Why? Because, you know, superego in authentic Freudian sense, it's not an authentic, let's call it naively, moral agency. It's a sadistic, perverted agency which bombards you with impossible demands, taking into account in advance that you will fail, and then, like, sadistically making fun of you and so on and so on. And that's the mystery. Did you notice the mystery of all this? rescue plans for Greece. Everyone knows that they are pure fiction. But, you know, this is a nice 
example of the theory of ideology. How? Something that everybody knows it's pure fiction, absolutely destined to fail, is nonetheless repeatedly play. Okay, there are different theories why one thing is that, you know, what the West is really doing under the guise of helping Greece is really helping saving their own banks, German, French, and so on. But what I want to say is that uh, we, I claim, we should not focus on Greece. You know, the moment you accept this perspective, lazy Greeks and then uh, Spaniards, they screwed it up, it's a wrong perspective. I claim that the ongoing crisis is not about spending greed, ineffectual bank regulations, and so on. My theory is a more basic one. Some economists convinced me, not even leftist economists. An economic cycle is coming to an end, a cycle which began in the early 90s. What happened at that point, if you are old enough, only a few of you, as unfortunately are, uh, the, in the late 60s and early 70s, something very important happened. It wasn't only the time of all crises and so-called stagflation, stagnation and inflation. Nixon's administration, Richard Nixon, the President of the United States, uh, decided to abandon the gold standard for the US dollar, but this was part of a much more important economic shift. By the end of the 1960s, the US economy was no longer able to continue the recycling of its surpluses to Europe and Asia. Till late 60s, the United States were up to a point what today China and others are, the export machine of the world. All of a sudden, from the mid-60s, surpluses turned into deficits. And then the Nixon administration, the brain behind it was that chairman, whatever, Paul, how do you pronounce it, Volcker or what? Who, yeah, yeah. He had an idea which was in a way quite creative and ingenious. He says his strategy was, why fight the deficits? Why not boost the deficits? Why not accommodate to the deficit so that we will profit from them? And from that point on, what happens? I will quote here a Greek economist, uh, Yanis uh, Varoufakis, who wrote a nice book called Global Minotaur, like the Greek monster god. Uh, this deficit started to operate like, I quote, like a giant vacuum cleaner absorbing other people's surplus goods and capital. While that arrangement was the embodiment of the grossest imbalance imaginable at a planetary scale, nonetheless, it did give rise to something resembling global balance, an international system of rapidly accelerating asymmetrical financial and trade flows capable of putting on a semblance of stability and steady growth. Powered by these deficits, the world's leading surplus economies, like Germany, Japan, later China, kept churning out the goods while America, United States, absorbed them. Almost 70% of the profits made globally by these countries were transferred back to the United States in the form of capital flows to Wall Street. And what did Wall Street do with it? 
it turned these capital inflows into direct investments, shares, new financial instruments, new and old form of loans, and so on and so on. So it was a very strange arrangement. The basis was quite literally, as finances tell you, Dell. From some two and a half decades ago, as another, I forgot his name, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, financial wizard, said, Let's accept it. For the United States to function, they need a minimum $1 billion a day of influx. And again, because the way the United States, through, uh, through uh, dollar as the universal commodity and through other strategies, they knew how to, as it were, recycle this growing debt. So, again, these are signs that the United States are, as we say, it's already a commonplace, an empire in decline. Its growing negative trade balance demonstrates that the United States is a non-productive predator. As already said, it has to suck up up to $1 billion daily influx from other nations to buy for its consumption. And it is, as such, the universal Keynesian consumer that keeps the world economy running. So it's quite funny when United States claim, you know, Republican administration against Keynesianism, but United States are Keynesian economy embodied. This influx, which is effectively like the teeth paid to Rome in antiquity, or the gifts sacrificed to Minotaur by ancient Greeks, relies on a complex economic mechanism. The United States are trusted as the safe and stable center, so that all others, from the oil-producing Arab countries to Western Europe, Japan, and now even China, invest their surplus profits in the United States. Since this trust is primarily ideological and military, not economic, the problem for the United States was, in the last decades, how to justify its imperial role. United States needed a permanent state of war, so they had to invent the war of terror, offering themselves as the universal protector of all other normal, not rogue states. So I think the entire globe tends to function as a universal, not so much Rome, as Sparta. You know, you had in Sparta three classes, the homoi, the communist top, the military, the traders, and the helots, the slaves. We have now, US is the military political-ideological power, Europe, parts of Asia, Latin America, the industrial manufacturing region, and the undeveloped rest, today's helots. In other words, global capitalism brought about a new general trend to oligarchy, masked as the celebration of the diversity of uh, cultures. And Equality and universalism are more and more disappearing as actual political principles. So, in very simple terms, this false balance based on radical imbalance of United States accumulating profits from all around the world, it was, this was our situation, and it's clear that it cannot go on indefinitely. For example, do you know that two key foreign countries Saudi Arabia and China. Each of them, the idea is each of them owns around, I think, five to seven percent of the 
entire wealth of United States. And I tend to agree that it is this system which is reaching its limit. This balance, which again has a precise beginning and end from those Nixon years, this, as it were, world balance based on United States deficit, which in a way it worked. It was a productive deficit. Deficit, it was really like some kind of a divine sacrifice which turned the world around, which is why I agree with these ancient Greek uh, uh, metaphors and so on. And I like it very much how this, although of course nobody believes in gods today, but did you notice how more and more, even in our media, very rational economic media, use the language of, I will now pronounce this wrongly, I hate these artificial words, how do you say prosopopoeia, oh, sorry, you know when things speak, no? I mean, we may laugh at primitives, but turn our media and you say markets express their worry, market signals, we all the time refer to things speaking, how will markets react? Markets made clear their worry and dissatisfaction and so on and so on. So, uh, okay, now let me go on. One of the consequences of this new situation, and here problems begin, is I think that unemployment is acquiring a new status. Today, more and more, the world market is a space in which everyone has once been a productive laborer. And labor has everywhere begun to price itself out of the system. That is to say, in the ongoing process of globalization, I claim the category of the unemployed acquires a new quality beyond the classical Marxist notion of the reserve army of labor. I agree here with Frederick Jensen, who proposed that one should consider in terms of the category of unemployment, also those massive populations around the world which have, as it were, they have dropped out of history. History. They were deliberately excluded from the modernizing projects of the first world capitalism, written off as hopeless or terminal cases, so-called failed or rogue states, Congo, Somalia, victims of famine and ecological disasters caught in pseudo-archaic ethnic hatreds, objects of philanthropy and NGOs, often the same people, and of the war on terror. I mean, I, here I'm a little bit of a lestive paranoiac. I think that these famous NGOs, non-government agencies, are usually uh, the other human side of terror. The category of the unemployed, I claim, should thus be expanded to encompass the wide span of population from the temporary unemployed through no longer employable or permanently unemployed up to people living in slums and other types of ghettos and finally the whole areas, populations or states excluded from the global capitalist process. Like the blank spaces in ancient maps. Something like, you know, you don't know, she's now forgotten, the 
and I don't even like her very much, the ex-East German writer Christa Wolf, but in one of her memoirs, she has a wonderful detail. Uh, she visited years ago with her daughter, that Fernseh TV tower in East Berlin. From there, you can see the West. No wonder it was so popular <laughs> in East Berlin. And uh, now you must remember, this is a wonderful detail, that I saw it, the East German map of Berlin. It is like normal city map, but the West is just white, a blank spot, you know. And she tells a wonderful story, Christa Wolf, that her daughter, at that time small girl, looked to the West and said, look, mommy, it's not white. People are also living there and so on, you know. That's where we are today. To this list, we should add also, I claim, the illegally employed, those who work in black markets and slums, even under conditions of different forms of slavery. Are we aware to what extent the economic rise of some of Middle East and Asian countries is basically sustained by slavery. I mean, I saw it firsthand. I went to a rich hotel in Dubai. Yeah, I was there where you will never be in. Were you there in Burj Al Arab, that one? You're but I did my Marxist duty. I become friendly with an ordinary taxi driver, and he explained to me the horrors, what you don't see. Like, literally, okay, not technically slaves, but people from Nepal, Philippines, Indonesia, their passports are taken, they work for 12 hours a day, and, uh, and uh, if they are happy working like slaves, they are able to send home around 150, maximum $200 per month. No? So, let me go on. Uh, the crucial point is that even those excluded countries, road state and so on, are nonetheless included into the world market. Let me mention the case of today's Congo. Beneath the facade of primitive ethnic passions which explode again and again in this heart of darkness, you can, if you look at it closely, see a totally different picture. Congo for the last two decades no longer exists as a state. Especially its eastern part is a multiplicity of territories ruled by local warlords controlling their patch of land by an army which as a rule includes drugged children warriors. Each of the warlords then with business links to a foreign company or corporation exploiting mostly uh, minerals, mining wealth in the region. So this fits everyone. The corporations get mining rights without taxes, the warlords get money. And are you aware how crucial this is for our industry? That the key minerals for our laptops, uh, cell phones and so on come all, come all from Congo. So it's again absolutely crucial to bear this in mind. Congo is not naturally heart of darkness. It is precisely as such that it's fully included into global capitalism. Then, we no longer have the category of formally employed. You know, with constant modernization, this happens as a rule. Like, you know, the standard story, for example, is in textile factories. You had workers, mostly women, unfortunately, 
doing their job there for 30 years, for example, and then all of a sudden, modernization, they lose their job. What they can do? There is always some idiot like Anthony Giddens who comes and tells them, you should use this as an opportunity to reinvent yourself. To, okay, but it's easy to say. Uh, then there is another thing. Uh, no, not only people who all of a sudden become unemployable, but people who are educated, but while they are educated, they are fully aware that there is even no chance that they will find employment in the domain for which they are educated. A whole generation of students have almost, has almost no chance of finding finding a corresponding employment, which of course leads to massive protest. And the reaction of the system to this are different reforms of education, like this catastrophe that we call in Europe Bologna reform, which means that education should be directly subordinated to, uh, uh, to businesses. This, if I were to be those in power, I would really worry about this unemployable students. You know why? Because they are the, I mean, let me be frank. You never can have a revolution or a radical unrest only with the poor people. You need educated. And are those in power aware that by creating this whole new strata of middle class, highly educated young people who nonetheless cannot find a career, they are literally schooling them for the organic intellectuals. I mean, it's absolutely clear they play a key role in Egypt, in Greece today, and so on, and so on. Next thing I want to add is that uh, uh, this new structural unemployment should be conceived as a form of exploitation. I think we should also expand the standard Marxist notion of exploitation, which is, you know, linked to wage labor. You sell your labor force, surplus value is appropriate by the capitalist. But I claim that we have to say that today, exploited are not only workers producing surplus value appropriated by the capital. Exploited are also those who are structurally prevented from even getting caught into the capitalist vortex of the exploited wage labor. So the paradox is that, you know, as some economists put it nicely in very cynical terms, today <clears throat> you have to be almost lucky to be able to be permanently exploited, you know, <laughs> that is to say to have a permanent job. The true tragedy is when, and uh, I'm not saying this as an old-fashioned Marxist, you will see, I claim that to use further in any meaningful sense, Marxist terms, they have to be rethought radically. These are simply things that Marx couldn't uh, predict. They don't enter his frame. But nonetheless, this would be, again, my first proposal, that we have to extend these two key notions, unemployment and exploitation, to understand what is going on. The third consequence of this is that in our politics, we were too obsessed by this liberal notion of anerkennung, recognition. You know, left liberal politics was basically predominantly politics of recognition. You focus on marginal groups, we should recognize them, and so on and so on. I think that 
exploitation is more crucial than recognition. So, okay, after this brief introduction, let me go on. So where do we stand now in 2012? 2011 was what I call poetically the year of dreaming dangerously, the revival of radical politics all around the world. Now, a year later, every day brings new proofs of how fragile and inconsistent this awakening was. The enthusiasm of the Arab Spring is over, Occupy Wall Street lost its momentum, and so on, and so on. But uh, I am even more a pessimist now than I was, because, uh, you know, even our good friend who will be here in August, Alain Badiou, wrote a book where he reached these awakenings, as it were, from Wall Street to, uh, to Tahrir Square and so on. As, ooh, didn't he publish a book with precisely the title Reveille de l'Histoire, The Awakening of History? Great emancipatory movements that we thought they are dead are back here. Unfortunately, I don't... Uh, Unfortunately, I don't uh, buy this. Uh, in what sense? Uh, uh, in, uh, sorry, in what sense? I think that precisely this new awakening shows more than ever the limit of the left, at least of the traditional left. Just think what was the typical image of the left till the last decade at least in the Western countries, which were relatively prosperous. Their strategy was, okay, we know that now there is no revolutionary situation, but, you know, they like to play the Cassandra. But wait a little bit. Ah, oh, there will be crisis, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so fuck you. Now we have crisis and we have unrest, but the man who really doesn't have any consistent project what to do is precisely the left, you know. Left is to say, okay, now it's our time, you know. But uh, there, there is only one consistent economic, apart from some kind of confused Keynesianism. T.J. Clark, the British art historian who published in the last issue of uh, New Left Review, a wonderful, brutal attack on today's left, has a wonderful characterization of what the left, democratic Western left, dreams about. Hey, listen, partly detached pseudo-nation state with non-finance capital-driven capitalism. That's the basic dream. No, let's not be controlled by international capital. Let's have a little bit more of a nation state, but not the old nationalistic nation state. With, okay, we have to be in capitalism. Let's just limit uh, financial capital and so on and so on. And correct me if I am wrong, but if you cut all that crap about, uh, 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 no, all this immediate democracy, blah, 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 which means nothing, as far as I know, there is only one concrete idea that left has produced, which paradoxically is the idea of how to 
justify, legitimize capitalism. It's, you know, the, the, the Belgian guy, Van Paris, did it, the so-called basic income. I think the more precise term is the way they call it in Brazil, renta basica, the basic rent. The idea that independently of are you employed or not, blah, blah, all citizens should get a certain minimal income, at least enabling you to survive. But the paradox is that as Van Paris, I've read him, states it openly, this is how he tries to save capitalism. His premise is, fuck it, capitalism is the only system that works. So can we somehow keep it, but nonetheless make it more just blah, blah, and that's his uh, proposition. Now, T.J. Clark, when he paints, you see the catastrophe, which really is, I think, a catastrophe. You know, now that there should be the moment of the left. Yes, we do have all the unrest demonstrations here and there and so on. But then, and I was doing this throughout the last year. I was on Occupy Wall Street and I was asking them like crazy, a simple Freudian question, you know, like, what does a woman want? But a real woman, not you, Avital. <laughs> no, you know, sorry, sorry. You expected something like this, you know. I love you. That was my way of saying I love you. I feel it. I feel it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 like, what do you want? And it's incredible how, apart from either abstract moralism, we want a just society where money serves people, not people serve money. Well, my God, my answer was Hitler would have fully agreed with it and so on, no? Or whatever. I mean, you don't get even, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think apart from some old-fashioned Keynesian ideas of regulation and so on, did you ever encounter any concrete plan of what to do? And I know it firsthand, he's a very sympathetic guy to boast, you can check it on TV, I was this Sunday four days ago or five in Athens, I had a long uh, conversation with Alexis Tsipras, and yes, absolutely no idea. You, you see my problem? Now that there should have been a, in classical Marxist terms, a revolutionary situation, no? You get more than ever. What you get is exactly nothing. So I agree with T.J. Clark that uh, one of the problems is the following one. The left, even if it's now a democratic left or whatever, they still maintain what T.J. Clark calls this eschatological attitude of, okay, now times are tough, no left movement, but we must be patient and work towards some big magic moment when I don't know, the true working class will arise, all people, all the marginal groups, it doesn't matter. We are slowly like in the underground uh, working, digging for the big moment. And I tend to agree with it. We should drop this. There never will be this big moment. You know, all of them are dreaming about this. Even Hart Negri have this. For example, look at the last pages of Empire. I'm sorry that when does he come that he is not here? Hart, no? 
it's all of a sudden he says, okay, now we have this multitude resistance, but the moment will come when all the multitudes will got together, take over, and, and so on and so on. And then it, the only reference he can give is San Francisco's here. <laughs> no other. So I think that uh, this is the limit. And I'm saying this as still some kind of a leftist, but not a naive leftist. Leftist in the sense that, unfortunately, I'm a catastrophist, moderate catastrophist. We are approaching deep shit, a critical situation. No, I think that simply it cannot go on indefinitely the way it is now. Well, wait a little bit what will happen maybe even in a couple of months in Europe and so on. I'm not saying it will be a big catastrophe. I'm just saying what is obvious now that you know, the crisis we are entering now is not the old crisis of, you know, part of what in Lion King they call the, the circle of life. It goes down, you know, this reminds me, of when I was young, I had a wonderful racist teacher who made fun of Roma, gypsies, and said, but he said a wonderful thing, that when there is sun, the gypsies are set, because they know that after the sun there will be rain, and when it's raining, the gypsies are glad because they know that after the rain there will be sun, no? Like, this was the usual attitude. Crisis is just a, a moment of withdrawal to have a new explosion. I think, even if this is in some sense true, we are really entering a, a long-term crisis. Who knows what will, who knows uh, what will happen? So, again, this is the problem. We have to drop, really drop, the Marxist eschatology of, again, this, you know, history moves towards some big awakening. Not even if it's not a Marxist, but this idea that, and I'm here even having like 5% ironic step at our good friend, Alain Badiou, who also, I think, is basically if I may put it like this, one of those who wait for the event, you know. It will happen. It will not happen. This is, unfortunately for me, the lesson of today. With all the unrests we have, well, up till now at least the only concrete result of these unrests is, what, <laughs> that left-wing governments <laughs> are replaced by right-wing governments. Now, am I saying that this is the end, that we should simply accept that the rule of the game is worldwide global capitalism, we can do it. No, this would have been a too easy way out. I think that I'm still a pessimist. I think that if we allow things to go on the way they go on, we are approaching some kind of new authoritarian, uh, new authoritarian society and so on and so on. So what can we do? I would like to quote here, uh, 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 Walter Benjamin in Arcade's project, where he develops this. He, Walter Benjamin quotes there the French historian André Monglon. You know this, everybody knows this metaphor, famous one of, I quote, the past has left images of itself in literary texts, images comparable to those which are imprinted by light on a photosensitive plate, the future alone possesses developers active enough to scan such surfaces perfectly. You know, this idea that if we can have events today 
which are signs, but signs not symptoms from the past, but signs from the future. They point towards, some, it's as if they are coming from the future. Only from the future will they be readable. I would like to have this metaphor. In all its radicality, we have to drop direct teleology radically. You know, this, the Marxist way would have been, yeah, of course, we have already the germs of communism today. Well, maybe it's true, but we definitely don't know what this communism will be, you know. Like, my idea is uh, the following one uh, here. Uh, let me, uh, 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 that we should maybe return to be very brief from Marx back to Hegel into this tragic vision. Yes, we live today in science from the future. And I am ready in a naive, idealized way even to say like what happened in Tahrir Square. It was admitted in a way a miracle a sign of a better future. Listen, nobody expected it possible. Most of us were usual racists and we thought all the stupid Arabs can do is some, if you want to arouse the masses there, what? You need fundamentalism, uh, religious fundamentalism, anti-Semitism, nationalism, whatever. Sorry, we had a big rebellion which precisely did not use any of this resources. So miracles happen. But what we should absolutely reject is the teleology, you know, of, ah, we see the tendency of history, the, the, there is the light at the end of the tunnel. Well, I'm here, I'm coming from Eastern Europe. And you know what we say when somebody says there is the light at the end of the tunnel. We say, of course there is, it's another train coming <laughs> to us. No, no. so uh, to give you, to go further with what I mean by this, do you know that uh, there, uh, uh, there is, uh, okay, I will slowly come to an end, but nonetheless, I want to develop this. Uh, I think we should use, let's do a little bit of theology, materialist theology, Blaise Pascal. Pascal, you know his idea of Miracles at, how do you call this uh, shit? I always have problem to pronounce this, uh, to uh, pronounce this uh, words, uh, Deus absconditus, you know, the hidden God. He has a wonderful notion of a miracle. He says that God had a choice of either openly revealing himself through miracles, which are here to all, but he says, in this way, it wouldn't be productive, good for our ethical attitude, because then, you know, any idiot, if you see the definitive proof of God, you will follow it. On the other hand, if God is too hidden, then it's nothing. So he proposes a wonderful idea of miracles, which are miracles visible as such, as miracles, only to those who believe. It's kind of a hermeneutic circle, you know. Like, things happen. If you can be what Pascal calls, calls a libertin. And it's very interesting, incidentally, a short historical notice here, how we are here in uh, 17th century, where 
libertinage meant something totally different than in 18th century. It's a wonderful shift. 17th century libertinage meant an atheist, simply, the one who doesn't believe. But nothing to do with some sexual promiscuity or whatever. It's only in 18th century that it acquired this sexual, whatever, decadence connotation. So again, Pascal's idea is that this is how God is testing us. There is something which happens. If you are a libertin, of course you will say this is just a coincidence, result of change, blah, blah, blah. Only if you believe in it do you see it as a miracle. And I think this exactly is the status, the way to read them in a non-teleological way. We should pass, ironically, from revealed communism to maybe not God, but communism absconditus. You know what I mean? Like that there are signs, wonderful things are happening here and there. But we have absolutely no ontological guarantee, no historical necessity will make. If we believe in it, it's a miracle. If we believe in it, which means if we will do something out of it. It's absolutely crucial not to fall, and Marx did fall into it, into this ontological trap. We have fragile signs here and there. Uh, if I can give you a wonderful example, I will try to be as short as possible, nonetheless, to conclude on time. Not only in politics, this is how I propose to read, for example, Tahrir Square, even Occupy Wall Street. It's maybe a sign of something. Of what? What the fuck do I know? Will something come out of it? Maybe, maybe not. Just, but we nonetheless should treat them as miracles. For example, a Pascalian libertine would say, so what? People demonstrated on Tahrir Square. Uh, it was just the result of historical situation there, contingent, and even now you got, they got what they deserved, a new Muslim Brotherhood government. That's the cynical reading. I think we should be a little bit more naive. It's a sign, but a sign of a possible future, but I read this sign, of course, a miracle in a totally non-theological way. A sign only that if you believe, I don't even like the term belief here, if you are politically engaged in this way, no, it shows some maybe potential without any guarantee. I would now, to conclude, just want to give you, for example, a, a domain where I found such a wonderful sign, which I think we should read with all naivety. A guy called, maybe some of you know him, Daniel Pink, wrote a book, Drive. It is a book of a very naive psychological social experiment. They took a group of American students, listen carefully, so it's very simple, and give them different jobs and compared how they do when you are differently paid. Low payment, mid payment, high payment. And they made a wonderful, strange discovery that if the, if the job is stupid, non-satisfactory, you just do it for money, then money matters. Like, you pay people little, they will do it so-so. You pay them more, they will do it better. But they made a wonderful discovery that if a job is intellectually challenging, satisfying, whatever you want, like a true enigma which engages you, then 
No, that's the beauty. Listen carefully. Then, it's not only that money doesn't matter. The beauty is that money is even counterproductive. If you pay them a little bit, they will do it so-so. If you pay them a little bit more, they will do it maybe a little bit better. But if you pay them too much, they will do it worse. <laughs> then, and then they thought this must be some American perversion. So they did something wonderful. They repeated the same experiment in poorest Indian villages in Indonesia and the same, and the result was the same. Isn't this almost like communism? You know what I mean? That you can prove that not only that, not only that money doesn't matter, but if you have some like for example, maybe there is something of this charm. I read a wonderful sociological text of, they analyze how, close to here, you know, CERN, those where they will ruin us all, reproduce the, the, the Big Bang, and as we know, it will be the end of the world, that uh, this is how they are there, you know. You are well enough paid to live moderately well, but the job is so engaging that if you were to introduce, oh, but if you are the first one to discover Higgs particle, you get one million or whatever, it wouldn't make it better. It would make it worse. I, now, we should not overestimate this type of stuff, no? But nonetheless, admit it very modestly. It proves at least something, that capitalist egotism is not natural, that you can when you are part of a creative process, and again, I'm not saying money doesn't matter. I'm here very cynical. In order to say money doesn't matter, you have to have enough money no? to say this. What I'm nonetheless saying that after a certain level, it does function, just this sense of as a motivation, and that financial motivation can even be uh, counterproductive. So again, these are, I think, the signs, as it were, the signs we should be, uh, I will now make it much faster, the signs we should be looking for. Now, if you just allow me to conclude, to make a total jump to a different domain. So, as you see, my vision is a very modest one. We are approaching a deadlock. I'm not a catastrophist. I'm not saying the deadlock is that at the end of this year, following some stupid Mayan calendar, I don't know, whatever. No, no, I'm only saying that, uh, that uh, well, we are approaching critical points. We can postpone them, but we are getting close. And that we don't have any, in the good old Marxist sense, ontological guarantee that there is a way out. It's just, you know, we should be like Pascalian theologists. There are signs, if we do something, we can, can make something out of it or not. Now, just if you allow me two short points. The first one, what subjective attitude would fit today's world? I, the first thing, I mean, to become engaged. I think the most important thing to do is to break out of the, what I naively call, predominant form of subjectivity today, which is the subjectivity focused on the notion of 
harassment, this, uh, what do you call it, uh, narcissistic subjectivity where the other threatens you and so on and so on. What do I mean by this? Uh, what is the inner logic of what is perceived or experienced as sexual harassment? It is the very asymmetry of seduction, the imbalance between desire and its object. At every way of an erotic relation, this is what I'm afraid of in politically correct uh, fight against harassment. Of course I'm against harassment. I'm well aware of the brutality of harassment. I'm just saying that this notion in its actual use covers something much more and with that I don't agree. <laughs> the basic idea of this type of left bourgeois, whatever, radicalized political correctness is that uh, this imbalance in the process of seduction, but I think this imbalance is constitutive, should be abolished so that only contractual reciprocity with mutual agreement is allowed. And there are even attempts to codify this. I learned that in some of those mysterious politically correct uh, campuses in Northeast. Northeast is the ideologically most interesting part, Northwest, sorry, of the United States. There you have either madness of political correctness or madness of, fundament of fundamentalism. That they even wrote the exact rules of it. Like, for example, it's quite comical that at every stage you should ask for permission. Let's say, sorry for this, for this bad taste uh, example, let's say I'm trying to seduce a girl. I said, could I please put my hand on your breast? Okay. Could I please now unbutton one of your buttons? Could I slowly go down and so on and so on? But the result is interesting. I was in this campus where they did it and they told me it works. But you know why? Because it's applied with wonderful self-irony and so on, you know. This is the only reason that it works. Okay, but let me go on. Are you aware that the secret model of political correctness, anti-harassment harassment attitude is that sexual intercourse gets basically desexualized, becomes a deal precisely in the sense of the equivalent market exchange between equal free partners where the staff exchange its pleasure. I think that this is the reason why I'm still more for Lacan or Freud than for Michel Foucault. We are shifting from sexuality to pleasures. And I claim that, uh, uh, that part of this process is precisely the extreme of the real. The explosive expansion of pornography in the digital media is, I think, exemplary of this process of desexualization of sex. You are promised always more sex. You will see everything and so on and so on. But the more you get it, the more it gets uh, desexualized. What is effectively happening, I claim, in this politically correct mutual contract sexuality, and it uh, is acquiring, uh, okay, I know these are only signs from the future, but dark signs, um, quite crazy forums. For example, I spoke recently, just before he knows where his next trip will be to Julian Assange, 
And he told me about the madness in blah, blah. And he told me a wonderful thing. He showed me the model that Sweden is now, <coughs> is now moving with this extreme political correctness. And <coughs> you know, <coughs> sorry, the situation there now, according to Assange, and I checked with some of my friends, they're leftists, and they confirmed this to me, is that Sorry for being personal vulgar. Let's say I'm flirting with a woman. We both want to do it. But let us say that at a certain point, <clears throat> I discovered that she hates Catholics. So I lie to her that I'm not a Catholic, but a Protestant. And then seduction goes on, no problem. She wants it, I want it, we do it passionately. Three weeks later, she learns that I'm a Catholic. Not only can she prosecute me, but technically our sex becomes rape. I become a rapist. So now comes a madness, contractual, which I like. Assange showed it to me. It's not yet legal, but they are already circulating among the legislating bodies. A kind of a contractual paper, like the idea is this one. Let's say, again, the same situation, I'm flirting with a woman, we both want to do it. But just so that we can be sure, we say, okay, we want to do it, so let's first do this. So we both fill the contract, name, we sign, I had these illnesses, this is my religion, this is that. We both date it, sign it, and then we can happily jump into bed, like, you know, we are covered. Nobody uh, did it, and so on. What I claim is that the, uh, what is really happening here, de facto, is that the partner is no longer a partner. In this, you know, we are coming back to, back to Immanuel Kant. Kant is philosopher, not the uh, dirty word. Uh, uh, namely, uh, you know how Kant defines marriage in a very contractual way, the famous passage from, uh, uh, not Grundlegung, but just Metaphysik der Sitten, two volumes. He said, marriage is a contract among two adults for the mutual use of sexual organs for pleasure. And Kant means it quite seriously. You may think he's kidding, but then look at the next page where he debates what happens if, let's say, a woman is married with a man and the man runs away? Does the woman's wife have the right to bring him back by police? Kant says yes. Why? Because she ran away with part of his body, penis, which contractually was also co-owned by her. <laughs> so it's none of the... It, but I claim that what Kant was like just dreaming about in a comical way, uh, is more or less in this sense becoming truth. I claim that the ultimate point of this mutually contractual, non-harassing sexuality, the ultimate point are two things. A, that the partner is ultimately reduced to a, an appendix to his, the partner becomes a composite of sex toys, if you, if you want, like this. Like, we marry, we make a contract, but it really just means I will use part of your body and so on. How does this work? I used this story years ago, and now I will again, 20 years ago, but you, 
I'm so sad I didn't put it on USB. I can show it to you. There was a wonderful British publicity for a beer. Sorry, Australian. They are the best. For a beer. You know that fairy tale where a woman sees a frog, kisses the frog, and the frog changes into a nice prince. Okay. This is how the publicity begins. Woman sees a frog, kisses his, the frog is a nice young guy. But you know what happens then? The guy kisses the woman and she changes into a bottle of beer. And <laughs> it's, we are moving from, you kiss a frog, you get a, although here I'm a good pessimist. I agree if you tell me that for most of the women, the practice, practical experience is probably the opposite one, no? That you kiss a man and then when it's too late, you discover that he is a frog, no? But okay, that's enough. What I want to say is that more and more, you know, from this more masculine perspective, you reduce the partner to your, uh, precisely, to a bottle of beer, to a partial object. Okay, let me now really stop very soon, just two, three minutes. First, which is why I think that this, uh, what they are doing in some radical gay movements in United States, where this contractual relationship even includes masochist practices of, you know, mutual torture, slavery, and so on. It's part of the concept. That's where we are. But how to break out of this? Okay, I will not go now. I have to finish, so I will just tell you something, I hope, to conclude with a maybe comical detail, but I take it very seriously. Uh, a good friend of mine wrote a book, Adam Kotzko, on uh, why do we like sociopaths. I think I even used this already in my uh, class here, but it's a wonderful story. I want to repeat it. And he noticed how today we have more and more sociopaths as heroes of our TV series. Different types of sociopaths. Either simple pathological fathers who are brutal, just enjoy annoying others like Simpsons and so on, or sociopaths like uh, like brutal achievers who are ready to kill, steal, to succeed, or these Avengers sociopaths like Jack Bauer and so on, who for some ca higher cause are ready to kill, to torture, and so on and so on. And I think that, and then Kotzko does a wonderful thing. He says, nonetheless, in each of these three types, there is some good redemptive quality that we should stick to with uh, these cheapest, lowest sociopaths like Homer Simpson is this, you know, innocent joy. Like, you know, when Homer Simpson with his evil, I don't know, lays a trap for his friend, he's so glad, oh, sucker, I got him, whatever, no? This simple joy of annoying the other. Then he says, with these uh, climbers, achievers, it's this ruthless ingenuity, how, you know, they always find a way to do, and with <coughs> people like Jack Bauer, or, and that's what I like in this book, that the worst sociopath is for him Dr. House. You know? <laughs> there you have this idea that you risk your private life, happiness for some cause. So I think that we should correct Stalin. You know, Stalin said in his famous answer to, to a question of a journalist in 29, what's the image of a good communist? Stalin says, 
a good Bolshevik should combine Russian passion, dedication, with American pragmatic, practical spirit. I think we should say that today what we need is a person who unites the brutality, the brutal dedication of Jack Bauer, the brutal spirit of somebody, brutal opportunism, finding your way of someone like Stringer Bell from The Wire, and this evil humor of Homer Simpson, something like that. Our only hope are people who unite these three features. Well, thank you very much. Jetzt kommt ein Kommentar. Ja. Yes. You should. Michael is he's kind of uh, going on at this, uh, with a discussion we had in all the evening. Like Homer Simpson, that was Krishwitz's example uh, of to whom you have to speak in order to, to get a. I don't know who Simon Krishwitz is. You don't know Krishwitz? No. Come on. Yeah, 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 because <laughs> I deny ontologically he may exist and you didn't get it empirically, but ontologically Simon Critchley doesn't exist. That's better, that's, yeah, he exists, yeah. He, he told us uh, that the Messiah is only coming by not coming. You mean he was probably a reference to Kafka, no? It's a day after, yeah, yeah, yeah. Part of that too, but it was also the same thing, your miracle yeah. idea, you know, only uh, if you are not taking it mm. as a serious event, uh, mm. so, but a miracle you mm -hmm. could not expect, mm? then it has a power. Uh, maybe, maybe, yeah, 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 Yesterday night from Abital and Benjamin, he was tired, you were sleeping, and Benjamin was awake. Who is? Benjamin is the guy who went to Russia to have sex with Asia Lachis but failed, no? Okay, so that I identify Benjamin. He's a walking guy who is walking stronger like Johnny Walker, you know? Stronger every day. Who? Benjamin. No, seriously, was he a walker? No. He even couldn't walk across the Spanish border, I mean, so. Johnny Walker, you, you don't know Johnny Walker? Yeah, I know whiskey, yes, and so, so yeah. Right. But That's I don't drink whiskey, you know why not? Because I'm a Stalinist, psychologically. If you drink whiskey, you become friendly, you smile, and then the enemy attacks and you are not ready, you know. Okay, but that's my <laughs> private Stalinism, no. You are pessimists now. There are no enemies, you know. There are no friends and there are no enemies either, you know. That's only I'm looking now at one, so let's... Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, 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 Because if I would be an enemy, I would take you seriously and cut the salaries of all the professors in half, because only then I can be sure that they, that they like what they do here in Cambridge. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Then you should learn from Brecht. Yeah. Because in our school,
school, 80% of the students' tuition go to the salary of the professors, means we, I can cut your tuition in half, too. <laughs> Only 80%. Only. Let's make it, can we liquidate you and let's make a direct deal 100%. You cannot liquidate me, you know, I'm already... But I can try, you know, but I can... Okay, so. I but it's a, it's a very uh, good point against uh, this metaphysical uh, making out of everything a theory and mm -hmm. promising ontologies, mm -hmm. uh, trust and security. Right? And uh, that is certainly something we were raised in, also, and we were also raised to resist. Mm -hmm. And event ereignis is certainly uh, one of the happening. Mm -hmm. right? We are open for this. Uh, but you, the first time you hear, you say something critical. You of what? Well, of. Yeah, no, usually you are very much on his side. I will tell him. You know. <laughs> you, and this will be the last thing that you will say. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I will tell him you said 5%. 5% you disagree. Okay. Yeah. And I'm sure Ellen will be gra graceful enough to say, okay, no problem. He's wrong, but okay. No, but quite seriously, can I ask you something and then you answer? Do you agree with this basic attitude yes. that nonetheless, I think really that we are approaching potentially dangerous times? Yeah, I mean. About it, and it's a, you always have a parallax view on it. You see that, and you are astonished, like every good yeah. philosopher is, should be. How come we have a revolutionary? missionary situation we are always there waiting for, and nothing. Yeah, nothing. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. They all lie, like they always do, you know, but this is also the answer. In this liar's game, there are so many people involved. Mm. They cannot, they, they are too big to fail, you know, yeah. because everybody is involved. And then they give some, some uh, what's that, uh, yeah, opfer. What is that? Okay, and Greece is a good place, you know, the first place of <laughs> philosophy, you know, this people have always been free. Uh, which I have seen on, on a Greece gas station people smoking cigarettes next to the gas they put in your, in your bicycle. Wonderful. They, they drive <laughs> against the one base fee, so you should never trust <laughs> that they do, and they never wear a helmet when they drive them. Mm. Motorcycles. I stress was my kind of people. Also, <laughs> but they, they are also the perfect, uh, uh, what's that? Um, what's that? Frosch. They are victims, no, when you make another person uh, uh, scapegoat. Right. Yeah, yeah. They are the typical yeah. scapegoat. Yeah. But on the other hand, they, and your friend, uh, certainly the communist, the young communist. No, he's not. A, you know what happens. Steve? Okay, I will tell okay. later. Yeah, yeah. Also, so young men in in Greece who, who uh, made a name in the crisis because that's how uh, you can still make a name. You have to involve yourself in, mm. in such a crisis. Uh, but he is, uh, yeah, he has no theory. He only knows that it will hurt the Germans and the French if the Greek the Greek people really would go out of the Euro system. Because yeah. there, is a, a kind, yeah, yeah, there is a kind of 
rationality to Merkel's not want to do that. You know, it is because nobody knows Lehmann is the best example. If they had saved Lehmann in New York, the whole mess would not have happened. So they would still lie in your face and, and say everything is fine, mm -hmm. this is great uh, financial mm -hmm. institution. They would still met of us uh, in a, on a great uh, scale. Mm -hmm. you know? And as long as the people play with it and on the other hand look at society as such, nicht? without the lies, there is no society. <laughs> you have to lie to each other in order to live with each other. Yeah, but there are lies and lies. Like yeah, 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 certainly. Yeah. There are bigger and smaller, the white lies and the really hurting lies and so on and so on. But there are always fine lines here, you know, in, in, in situation, context, and uh, you are the best example. Uh, of what? Or big lies or small lies? <laughs> <laughs> the, small, the small best example. So, um, still, what I don't like about your talk, yeah. No, finally we are. <laughs> no, no, it's not that you uh, kind of violate my uh, uh, rule, my vision here, let these idiots, the politics, and it out of my school, you know, then we know. How but that's why I chose this topic, to violate this rule, as I said. Yeah. That is important. No, no, it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Other places to do uh, 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 that, you know. Or we can throw you out and establish ourselves as a political... This is exactly what, what you cannot do. You should be very careful that I am still alive, you know, otherwise you will not be able uh, to come here. Also, I'm your protector, not your enemy. And, and it is a, it is a, a way, I think, uh, which if you bring it into the philosophical realm, my only... Uh, Aversion is, yeah. is taste, you know, it's tasteless politicians. Nicht? Politics is uh, a technique which brings together garbage with uh, sending people to die in the war. And I think it's uh, uh, so old-fashioned, uh, we, we should have destroyed it and done something else 